Good morning. My name is A.K. Kurovilla. I'm one of the elders here at Bayou City Fellowship. And uh, if you read the notes, you might have seen that uh, I'm also be going to. Jo- I'm also joining the pastoral team here, effective July the first. So, <laughs> thank you. So I'm looking forward to it, uh, to to work together with you, to minister together with you, as we lift the name of Jesus both in this city and around the world. So what we have been doing over the past five Sundays is to uh, is look at the Holy Bible. So we've looked at different aspects of it. We first looked at inspiration, where we asked, is it really the Word of God? Is it really trustworthy? And then we looked at preservation. How did the Word of God get to me? We moved on to interpretation. How do I read it and make sense out of it? How do I understand this and respond to it? Last week, we looked at application, and the question was, is the Bible really relevant? Ancient words, written long ago, uh, people who don't know our circumstances, does it still make sense to follow? Is it really relevant in our 21st century? And today, we're going to look at uh, another aspect of application, and we conclude the series today. And the question we're going to ask is, how do I practice God's Word? How do I apply God's Word? How do I practice the Scriptures? If this Scripture is indeed God's inspired and authoritative Word, then how do I connect that with my life? What does Scripture have anything to do with my work or paying my bills, my marriage, hanging out with my friends, what I post, like or dislike on social media? Is this other scriptures really speaking into any of those things? Or is it just some book that's out there that is left for us to parse and get some technical information? God has provided his word not just for information, but God has provided his word so that we might be transformed. Not just information, but transformation. That's what God has in mind. So as we look at this question, a first place to start, a good place to start would be, what was Jesus' approach to Scripture? After all, what did Jesus do? Jesus had many things to say about Scripture. Uh, for example, he said that the details of Scripture were significant. Not the smallest letter or stroke will pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Even the small letters of the Hebrew alphabet, he said, is significant. Not only that, Jesus regarded all of Scripture as significant. He made reference to the creation account. He made reference to Noah and the flood, thereby telling us that Genesis was Scripture. He referred to Jonah, thereby showing us that Jonah was Scripture. So, and then you have this interesting passage in Matthew chapter 23, verses 34 through 35. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar." They got to begin to wonder, what what, what does that got to do with Abel and Zechariah? 
Well, Abel, if we remember our um, stories, we know that Abel brought a gift that God was pleased with. Cain, his brother, was upset that that happened, so Cain killed Abel. So Abel was the first murder recorded in the Bible, and that was for a righteous deed. So that was righteous blood. What about Zechariah? Well, if we go into Second Chronicles, we find what happened to Zechariah. Zechariah was stoned for calling the people of God to faithfulness. Now you, now you have to ask the question, what's Abel got to do with Zechariah? Well, if you look at the Hebrew scriptures, they have the law, the prophets, and the writings. In the law, the first book is uh, Genesis, and in the writings, the last book is Second Chronicles. So Jesus is referring to the first martyr to the last martyr, thereby telling us that all of scripture is significant. Not only the details uh, of scripture, but all of scripture is significant. So that is God's, Jesus' approach to Scripture. If the details of Scripture and all of Scripture was significant to Jesus, then surely it must be significant to us. Now, what did Jesus do with Scripture? So turn with me to Matthew 4. That's where we'll see Jesus addressing the devil who is tempting him. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus had just fasted. And he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. So the devil says, All right, you're hungry, Jesus. Uh, If you're truly God, you remember uh, that you fed the Israelites manna in the desert. You provided them wonder bread in the desert. Now, you can surely take these stones and turn them into bread. That shouldn't be a problem, should it? And Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then you find the second temptation and the third temptation. And each time Jesus says, it is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus Jesus saw or recognize that the scriptures were authoritative. If it was written, it was serious. Now think about this. If the living word needed the written word, how much more should we who have never written any word need the written word? (laughs) It is written. So how do we practice the word or practice scriptures daily? In other words... How do we live under the authority of God as he communicates to us through his word? That's our challenge, right? How do we live under the authority of God as he communicates to us through his word? Jesus has not left us without uh, any instruction there either. Turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. And he tells a parable. That begins in verse 5. So Luke chapter 8, verse 5. The sower went out to sow his seed. It's a familiar parable perhaps to most of you. Uh, Some fell beside the road and it was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rocky soil and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. 
And other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And he said these things, he would call out. As he said these things, he would call out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now the disciples didn't get it. They couldn't quite figure out what this was all about. So Jesus then goes on to explain to them what the parable is all about. So he does that starting verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. And those beside the road are those who have heard it. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. So in some cases, that's what happens. And those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. So the word lands, there's some temptation, I'm distracted, and I don't stick with it. That's another type. And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries, riches, pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to maturity. So that's another type of soil. The word falls... But I got worries in this life, riches and pleasures that distract me so that I won't stick to it and follow through in obedience. And the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. So the word of God falls on me. I hear it with a sincere heart, a heart that desires the truth, a heart of integrity, And then I hold fast to it. I cling to it. I don't let temptation, worries, and other pleasures distract me. I hold on to it even when that happens. And then I persevere. I live in obedience. Persevere in obedience to bear fruit. And that is what Jesus is saying should happen. If you want to be a fruit-bearing Christian. Here here and hold fast with a good heart. Obey with a persevering heart. So now we got to think, all right, what does it mean to hear with an honest and good heart, a good and sincere heart? Notice that the condition of the heart is important. It is one of integrity. It is a heart that wants to know the truth and wants to know what's good and wants to accept the truth as revealed by God. Remember Jesus saying, he who is of the truth hears my voice. In effect saying, look, If you don't want to hear the truth, you will never get to the truth. If you don't want to hear what Jesus is saying, you'll never hear what he's saying, regardless of how loudly he shouts. He who is of the truth, hear my voice. So the condition of your heart, the soil, is extremely important. It's got to be good, it's sincere, desires truth, desires to hear from God. So if we want to hear that, let's say we have the right heart, the right attitude. How do we figure out what God is saying? In some cases, it is easy. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. All right, that's pretty easy to understand. Now, how do we really get a sense of what God is saying in his word? Because some are just stories and and, and things like that. So for that, let us for a moment consider how language works. So if my wife were to tell me the garbage can is full, 
which he does if I haven't been paying attention to it. Now, you know, we're old school, so that falls into my scope of work. So, now, if she says that, if you didn't know anything about it, you might say, well, she's saying that there is a garbage bag that is full, maybe hefty or whatever, 13 gallons, and there is no more place to add any more garbage. I mean, you could interpret it that way because you understand these words. But what, she's really, what is she really saying? She's really saying, get that garbage out and put a new bag in. <laughs> so what we necessarily, what we say literally may not be what we are really communicating. And that's the challenge in all of communication. It's to get a sense of what people are saying. For you to get a sense of what I am saying. This is the challenge. So this is why we talk of some people say, well, you know, he's really not clued in. Well, he understands words and phrases and sentences, but he's got no clue, no sense as to what is really being communicated. So we've got to get a clear sense of what is being communicated, whether it's written communication, verbal communication, God's word also. So... Now you might say, well, that is strange. I mean, that kind of thing can happen. Well, we really do that in practice. Take, for example, our Constitution that was written in 1787. In Article 1, Section 8, uh, it describes the powers of Congress. So let me read a, read a little extract. The Congress shall have powers to raise and support armies, to provide and maintain a navy, to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces. Now, if you caught that, it should be interesting. There is no mention of the Air Force there. So, are we, are we violating the Constitution if we fund the Air Force? Well, flight came into existence probably in 1903. At least that's when the Wright brothers flew, flew their plane. But the Constitution was written in 1787. There was no flight at that point. So the framers, here's what they did. They took the particulars of their environment and projected a world out there and said, hey, all of you guys living in 2017, this is the kind of way we'd like for you to live, where the government pays for the defense of the country. They used the particulars, land and navy was all they had, but to tell you that the defense of the nation is the responsibility of the nation itself, and Congress shall have powers to fund them. So, let's say in 10 years you have a national drone force or some other force. We will fund those too, because if it's part of the defense of the nation, that's what the Constitution is projecting for us into the future. Now, so, this kind of thing we do all the time. And so, essentially whether it be written communication or verbal communication, we've got to get a sense of what is being communicated if we want to respond to it. Now, what about the Word of God now? We talked about regular communication. What about the Word of God? What is God trying to do with His Word? Now, God's Word is inspired, the Bible tells us. It is useful, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That's what we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So God's word is intended to accomplish something in us listeners. God's word is God's voice that's calling us into a relationship 
saying, respond this way so that I can shape your belief and your behavior. God's word is intended to accomplish something. Our challenge is to understand and get a sense of what exactly is God trying to accomplish. Now, God's word and God's speech accomplishes many things. Full of, uh, all through scripture, you find that. For example, in Genesis chapter 1, nine times you see it, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. God speaks and creation comes into existence. Psalm 19 talks about creation itself speaking. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. The firmaments declare the work of his hands. A silent declaration of God. In the prophets, we find that God's word hardened some hearts, softened some hearts. We see that God's word presses Moses into service, Jeremiah into service. God's word accomplishes something. And then for 400 years, from Malachi to the Gospel of Matthew, there is silence. And then we find the word of God, the voice of God becomes flesh and dwells among us. He speaks, people leave everything and follow him. He speaks people into discipleship. He says, hush, the winds and the waves obey his will. He speaks to defeat the tempter. He spoke to heal and to restore. He spoke to feed and to bless. So God's word comes with inherent power because it is his voice. The voice is saying something to accomplish something in us listeners. He wants to shape us. So when God speaks and we respond, things happen. It happened in history, it happens today, and it will happen tomorrow. When God speaks and we respond, things happen. So, going back to what Jesus said, we have to hear what he's saying, get a clear sense of what he's saying, with a desiring heart, obviously. And then we got to make sure we don't get caught up in the details. Yes, look at the trees, look at the leaves, but don't lose sight of the forest. Get a sense of what he's saying. And we'll look at some examples here soon. And then make sure that we cling to it, hold on to it. Don't let temptation, worries, riches, pleasures distract us from obedience and keep obeying with perseverance. That's what, that's what Jesus told us to do. So that is the essence of practicing Scripture. That is the essence of applying God's Word. Here, get a sense of what God is saying. Hold on to it with a heart that desires to follow Him and follow through in obedience. Persevere and obey. Now, with some passages, this is pretty easy. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, you can get a sense of what he's saying. For example, let's take Matthew chapter 6, 25 through 33. It's a familiar passage. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being wor worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you, that not even Solomon in all his glory was clothed, had glory clothed himself like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith, do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, that's not very complicated to understand, is it? Not at all. God tells us, don't worry or be anxious. Why? Because the same God who watches over these birds and these flowers watches over you. And you are of a whole lot more worth to him, created in his image. You are a whole lot more worth to him than these birds and these flowers. So the birds don't have to sow, reap, or have a food bank for their food. Then he says, you don't need to worry or be anxious. Now, Can we be concerned? Yes. But when the future is pulled into the present and we pretend that it has already happened, then we are full of worry and anxiety. Something that could happen, we pull it in, pretend that it's already happened, and we are worried and we are anxious. And that is crippling and paralyzing. So he says, don't do that. Have concern? Yes. Do what you need to do? Yes. But don't let the potential future come into the present and cripple you or paralyze you because your God, to whom you are worth a whole lot, knows what you need and will provide for your every need. So he's calling us to a response. He's saying, look, that's what it is. So I don't want you to worry. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Will we hear that and respond? Will we then say, okay, will, will we have concerns, illegitimate, but we are not going to worry because God has called us not to worry. And even when we are distracted, even when there are temptations to worry, even when there are real worries that make us anxious, we say we're not going to worry and be anxious because God is in control and provides for our every need. Will we respond that way or not? That's the response God is calling us to in this word. Now that was pretty easy. What about Genesis chapter 5? Let's move over there. Now Genesis chapter 5 is an interesting chapter because the only refrain you hear there is so and so lived so many years and he died. All of the days of so and so are so many years and he died. So this is a formula. So Adam. Adam lived 130 years. He became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, named him Seth. Then the days of Adam after he became the father was 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. And this goes on for everybody. So what is God trying to communicate to us? Is he trying to tell me that life is all about living a few years, having a few kids, and then dying? If so, is he saying, all right, I want you to know this and respond. So eat, drink, and be merry, because one day you're going to die. Is that his communication to us? 
what is the response he wants from me from a passage like this? If we read further, we'll find something very interesting. We come to Enoch in verse 21. And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. So Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, uh, Jared, all these guys lived so many years and they died and he died and he died and he died. Enoch walked with God and he was not. That should arrest our attention. What was so special about Enoch? Enoch walked with God. That's what the scripture tells us. There was a special intimacy and a relationship with God. This was not just a casual stroll. If you look at the form of the verb, it says it was a habitual, continuous walk. It was an intentional walk. Enoch followed God. Now in Genesis 3, we read God was walking in the garden with Adam. And then he was banished from the presence of God because of sin. And in chapter 4, we read Cain was driven from the presence of God because of what he did. With Enoch now, there is a reversal because he walked with God and God took him. It's the same thing, same verb you might use. It says he took her for his wife. A new relationship starts when God takes Enoch. Enoch, who walked with God, entered into a new relationship with God, that he would never be separated with God and lives with God forever. So God is calling us. That's the sense of this text. He's calling us to walk with him, to know him and to follow him and be with him forever. While everybody around us may be dying, living a few years, we have hope. We can walk with him and live forever. The question is, will we hear? Will we hold on to it when there are temptations and distractions? And will we follow through in obedience and walk with him regardless of our circumstances? That's what we've got to answer. That's the response that God is calling us to from this text. Now, just a little aside. Enoch lived 300 years. Uh, well, keep going. Enoch lived 365 years and he died. Interesting. His life was the shortest of all these other people in this chapter. Goes on to so show, perhaps length of life is not necessarily connected with blessing in life. Enoch lived just 365 years compared to the eight and 900 years that people were living. So, hearing God's word, clinging to it, obeying with perseverance, that's the call. Let me now just go to one more passage. Uh, Genesis chapter 22. And the reason I'm going into these passages is because they're all narrative, they're stories, and we want to be able to get a sense of what God is communicating to us so that then we can respond to that 
appropriately, just as God would want us to respond. So, Genesis 22, Abraham is sacrificing his son. It's another familiar text. So, what is God trying to communicate to us? Is he trying to say, well, Isaac is a prototype of Christ? Well, maybe. Or is he trying to say that the ram that he sacrificed was symbolic of Christ? Don't know. Or is he trying to say Abraham is a prototype of God, the father, sacrificing his son Isaac? What is the response that God is after through this story? Let's find out. The chapter opens with chapter 22, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. So there is a time stamp after these things. After what things? What are we talking about? Let's take a quick tour. In Genesis 12, we find Abraham leaving his homeland. He obeys God's call and journeys to Canaan. Then on the way, we find him decamping to Egypt because of a famine. Now we got to wonder, did he not trust God enough to provide him with food in a famine? Did he have to decamp and go to Egypt? We don't know, but suggest that's a possibility. And then in Egypt, you find that he's afraid that Pharaoh will take his wife, who's beautiful, as uh, for himself. So he tries to pass her off as a sister. Can God not protect Sarah for Abraham? So he's got to orchestrate all these things to find food, to protect his wife by lying, and doesn't in any way reflect any sense of faith and trust in what God has told him. Because God has promised him a number of things, beginning with chapter 12. You also have to wonder, why did Abraham take Lot? When God asked him to leave, he told him, just leave everybody and go. He took Lot. Maybe he thought, you know, I'm quite old. I may never have a child, so Lot might be sufficient. Let's just take him along. Lot might be a good substitute. Well, that sure didn't work because Lot ended up in Sodom. So Lot is gone. Maybe the descendant will come from me, Abraham thought. But then Sarah is on Medicare. What do you do? <laughs> well, how about Hagar? Sarah's maid. That might work. Now you know the rest of the story there. What a mess that created. So we're in trouble. Abraham is stumbling along, bumbling along, merrily moving along. Not much of faith in anything that he does. He's orchestrating everything and trying to make things happen. He does not seem to take God seriously. Finally, Isaac is born. And God makes it very clear, unmistakably clear, that God has kept his promise. And, and the text is beautiful. Just turn one page back to chapter 21. And look at the first two verses. In two verses, he tells three times, I have kept my word and my end of the bargain. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as, as he had said. Number one. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Number two. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham, if you didn't get it, I'm telling you again and again and again. I have been faithful. I have been faithful. 
You have Isaac. I have kept my promise. Now, Abraham, will you trust me? So the text says in, verse 20, in chapter 22, God tested Abraham. God has been faithful, kept his word. Abraham, will you trust him now? And so here is Abraham's test. And the question is, will he pass or fail? Let's find out. Now, as Abraham is taking Isaac along, you've got to kind of wonder what's going through his mind. He probably had an emotional struggle. I would think he has because he's been waiting for the son. The son is here and God is asking him to take him up the mountain and sacrifice him. An emotional struggle, a struggle that's hard to bear. I'm sure there was a relational struggle. What if he had to go home without Isaac? What's mama going to say if he said Isaac was sacrificed on the mountain? That's not going to sit well. I am sure, or we can be reasonably sure, that Abraham had a theological struggle. Okay, God promised, God provided, and I'm going to have descendant like the stars in the sky, and God is asking for the sun back. I mean, how do I figure all this out in my head? What, what's the theology here? So with all these struggles, his back is against the wall. He's pinned down. He has no escape, no way out of it. Life, for sure, feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? You're kind of trapped. There's nowhere to go. Don't know what to do. Don't know where to turn. You're trapped. Well, what does Abraham do? He just does what God asked him to do, regardless of his circumstances. So he follows through and lifts up his knife. And then we read um, in, in chapter 22, verse uh, 11. In 10, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. He's passed the test. God knows that Abraham fears God. You want to know what fearing God is like? You and I, if we fear God we really will hold nothing back from him when we're called to obey. That is essentially the fear of God. And it's defined for us and illustrated for us through the life of Abraham. Now I know that you fear God because no other love stands in the way between God and you obeying at all costs. Now it's also interesting to see the ram in verse 13. And Abraham raised his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Interesting. That ram was probably always there. But when Abraham followed through in obedience, his eyes were open to God's provision. And he could then sacrifice the ram. You see... When we follow through in obedience, we will see the provision of God. And that's what we learn here. Now, that's what God is communicating to us. We have a choice. Will we hear? Will we hold on to it when there are temptations? 
Will we hold on to it when there are worries and anxieties? And will we follow through in obedience? So in this passage, we see what fear of God is, and there is a call to fear God. Will we respond? And we get a sense of what God is calling us to do through this passage of Scripture. So, how do we practice God's Word in daily life? When there are temptations, when there are worries, when there are riches and pleasures that might distract us, or all kinds of other things that might distract us, hear and hold fast with a good heart. Obey with a persevering heart. Father, we thank you for what you revealed to us. Because of your grace, we are able to even understand this. We are able to respond to it because of the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. So we pray that in ways that are beyond our comprehension, that you would energize us, you would enable us, you would empower us, that our lives may be found pleasing to you. Lives of obedience that might lift the name of Jesus, that might represent the name of Jesus to all around us who watch us. This we ask in Jesus, our Lord's precious name. Amen.